Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. I'm here with William Ottman, a.k.a. Bill. He is an American internet entrepreneur and freedom of information activist based in New York City, best known as the CEO and co-founder of Minds. Bill, thanks for taking the time tonight. Thanks for having me, Stefan. It seems like kind of an opportune time to be talking about all this kind of stuff. But why don't you take me back a little bit to help me understand how you got started with Minds, what the initial impetus was, and uh, seed funding and partners in arms and so on. For sure. So we've always known that there was almost an inevitability that an open source, decentralized social network was was going to emerge. It had to because there was such dominance and monopolization by the mainstream networks and none of them were open source. None of them were decentralized. And, you know, they had all of these censorship policies and users were being abused in numbers of ways from surveillance, uh, hard, both hard and soft uh, to demonetization. You know, you know all the scope of the problems. And so we started building years ago and um, just spent years just building out a scalable infrastructure launched our first mobile apps in 2015, got a big surge around our privacy features. And that was around the time of all the NSA surveillance leaks. So, you know, there was a lot of attention through that phase. And then the algorithm started getting worse. And then the censorship started getting worse. And we just have been naturally experiencing this this wave of growth just sort of as like a natural balancing mechanism, it seems like, with the Internet. Right. How far down the pipe did you see this lefty, controlly, semi-socialistic slash fascistic takeover of the social media giants? I feel like that's been a little bit more recent. Um, you know, it's really odd because I'm positive that there are internal wars going on within these companies. It's not so monolithic to the point – I mean – People like, for instance, Peter Thiel is on the board of Facebook. You know that he's sort of contrarian with regards to the the rest of the thought there. Twitter, I've, I've read extensive articles from insiders who talk about just battles they have about all of these free speech issues. We see what just got leaked today, the Google, quote unquote, the good censor piece, um, and where they're clearly having an internal dialogue about – how to uh, attack these issues, but we are seeing the proof that which ideas are winning, and and those are the uh, more authoritarian ideas, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a business battle and an ideological battle. And business and ideology can work hand in hand, but I think it generally is best if the business ideology mixes libertarian and free market, then I think it works really well. But it's almost like there is this ring of power that was really revealed in 2016 in the Trump election, was really revealed with Brexit, is is being revealed. I think even Judge Kavanaugh, I think social media had a lot to get out, the skepticism about some of these allegations. And there is this really wild push to curate, to control, to nudge. And it's all supposed to be very sensitive. You know, well, our listeners don't know the difference between this, that, and the other. It's like... That's a deep philosophical question. It's an epistemological question. What is truth? What is reality? What is perspective? What is nuance? These are all very difficult questions, and they should be answered in the free market of ideas, not by some people with their curation code. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 
the levels have gotten very extreme with with the censorship and and content policies and i think that what strikes me as just odd is that they're you have to imagine they're looking at the data and the analytics in regards to the effects of censorship and what we know is that censorship from dozens of peer-reviewed studies including one that just hit the atlantic today um called hidden tribes where they surveyed thousands of people and and found that um you know they're pretty much all pc and anti-pc and but but the studies show that censorship increases exposure to those issues it causes further radicalization it causes more attention to be brought to to what is being censored so even if your intention was to censor things the way to go about censoring things is actually not to censor because <laughs> well okay okay now i i there's a tipping point though right so for sure the streisand effect occurs when you're beginning to encroach censorship but i'm pretty much guessing not a lot of citizens of Brezhnev's Russia were thumbing through their copies of Atlas Shrugged. You know, if you go, you go full tilt boogie on the censorship and you get it pretty much where you want it to be. There's not a lot of von Mises floating around North Korea these days. That is true. And that that's why it's still inexcusable. And it, it certainly does have a social effect uh, to censor. But at the same time, if they're really looking long term, you know, with the growth of crypto and more peer-to-peer decentralized technologies, I, I just have to think that they know that the internet is, you know, going to route around these issues and, and that they would want to be ahead of the curve in that regard. But, you know, maybe they're just thinking more short term, short term in, you know, political gain um, and profit. I mean, that, that might be the the reality. But the problem is that we can't even talk to these people because these executives just hide behind closed doors and won't have honest conversations about what's going on in the back end. Oh, I mean, they won't even tell you if your your data has been breached by some hacker on Pluto. I mean, the idea that they'd come and tell you, here's how we are curating the news and here's why. And it is, I think, fundamentally, Bill, an attempt to solve a problem caused by bad education with technology and technology can't it's like saying do some sit-ups to some guy who's 400 pounds and having his third heart attack it's like sit-ups some time back ago might have been helpful but right about now they're not going to help because the fundamental question for me bill is if the, the tech giants are saying well there's all this fake news out there the question is well why is why do they perceive that the average citizen can't figure out what the truth is well the government has these kids for 12 years, kind of teach them a little bit about how to tell the truth and how not to tell the truth. And if they feel that people can't tell the truth isn't the solution to bring more philosophical rigor and critical thinking into the classroom rather than play whack-a-mole yeah. with every piece, species of undesirable opinion out there on the Internet. Exactly. That's our approach with, uh, quote-unquote, disinfo. You know, our policy is that if it's legal in the U.S., it can be on the site. And you know, providing people with tools to learn about how to research and ha how to vet information and how to even how to protect yourself online um, uh, in certain degrees from uh, th there are malicious people online and there, there is bad information circulating, but it is so much more a service to people to teach them how to think as opposed to what. <laughs> well, and the argument, which I'm sure you've heard perhaps even ad nauseum, is 
okay, let's say there's some guy out there who's touting some, quote, fake news. Maybe it is real fake news. I don't know, whatever, right? But that guy's not dragging us into war. He's not dragging us into close to $200 trillion of unfunded liabilities. He's not destroying the school system or the nuclear family. You know, I mean, it's all the stuff that they skate over to get to what they call the fake news that I find particularly astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to to think that a few think tanks that are just subjectively making these decisions are, are dictating what is getting flagged. And I mean, the, the Facebook algorithm has gotten so it, the literally thousands of different variables feeding in to what you're seeing in your newsfeed. They got exposed a few years back uh, for actually working with Princeton on a mood experiment where it was proven that they, you know, they wanted to see if they could influence people's behavior in a positive or negative sense in, in terms of being happy or sad. Then they, yes, they found that they could. They could feed you with more negative, sad articles and find that the effects were that it could could make you sad. Ba- I mean, literally mind control. Um, and then they later apologized for that. And so, um, and and then you know, in the Zuckerberg uh, testimony he they they point blank asked him you know are you looking at studies of you know dopamine and you know addiction and you know are are you targeting users in this in this way and he just completely denied it and it just to for him to deny that they aren't having very high level uh data analytics experts and uh you know studies uh occurring to, to deny that they're looking at that information is just so obtuse. It's it's unbelievable. Well, that's when they even bother showing up for these Q&A periods. Sorry, yeah. we're busy. Now, this, to me, has happened before in, in history, and I go particularly to the Gutenberg Press and the, the translation of the Bible into the vernacular and the spread of that throughout Christendom, particularly, of course, in Western Europe and Central Europe as well. And before we had this kind of monolith of the media. I sort of idly sometimes look back in history and say, what would it have been like if there had been social media around the time of McCarthy, right? So McCarthy trying to root out all these communists. Now McCarthyism has become a symbol for fruitless paranoid witch hunts, which it it technically wasn't at all. I mean, there were a lot of communists in, in probably still are. And now that there's not this monolith of narrative, when I grew up, there were like basically two television stations in, in England when I was a kid. Then there were more television stations, but overwhelmingly left-wing. Then Fox came along, of course, and there was one bifurcation there. But now it seems that just as, as happened when Christians got their hands on a copy of the Bible in their own language, everybody put their emphasis on different things. Christendom kind of split apart. I have to unfortunately skate over the 250 years of religious warfare to, to just point out that it can produce some wonderful diversity of thought over the time. But when, when a monolith breaks up, the media, academia, uh, and, and public school education, when that monolith breaks up, I think you see this kind of centicon hold and, and centrifugal force spinning people out into, I don't want to say radicalization, but just encapsulation in their own belief systems. Yeah, yeah, this is the next level of that. We're seeing, you know, we see these um, flows between centralization and decentralization of of power with regards to information. And, you know, the Internet sort of started out a little more decentralized than it is now. And then we moved into these big silos of of social networks. And, you know, 
to be fair, I think that it is part of the natural growth of the internet to, you know, the cloud emerged for a reason. It, it, it is actually useful for certain functions, but certainly not sh- shouldn't be the future of, of how we're storing information. Obviously, we want to move back towards the peer-to-peer structure. And now that machines are advancing and uh, you know we're having really interesting uh, peer-to-peer protocols, like we're, we're playing with a new, a new framework called DAT, D-A-T protocol which is sort of a torrent-based system, and we're going to be playing with that in connection with Ethereum uh, public-private key cryptography so that, you know, literally none of our servers are even involved. And, you know, we're going to start to see scalable solutions like that emerge. But, you know, for for Minds.com, we do use some central servers now and, and some decentral stuff, and we're really more hybridized, but constantly pushing it as far towards the more distributed system uh, as we can. So let's help people understand the difference in the model between obviously the the major competitor Facebook and how Minds is set up and why it's set up that way, what it's designed to avoid. Yeah, I mean, there there are similarities and differences. So we are, we do use central servers right now. We have a dramatically different content policy. So we allow, as long as it's legal in the US, we allow it. Um, and that just creates healthy discourse. Now, we are using Ethereum for our advertising system and for our payment system between users. Um, Ethereum is a blockchain, a general purpose blockchain. And our, we launched a token on the Ethereum blockchain, which you earn on mines for receiving engagement and referrals, and then you can use the tokens to get more Im- impressions on your content or send to other users, sort of creating this microeconomy. And we also use WebTorrent for video serving so that when videos go viral, everyone's browser is actually helping serve that, which is really valuable. But we do use some central servers now too, but we just launched a pro- uh, project at uh, the Ethereum San Francisco conference uh, called Nomad, which is our prototype for moving into m- more of a fully, truly decentralized architecture. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's exciting that finally things are catching up so that we don't have to trust Facebook or Google or even Minds. I don't want to trust Minds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't want to trust our, our servers. I don't want to, it's better if everyone is, uh, is in charge of their own situation. <laughs> right. There is no central code that controls what people see. There's no curation of the news. And the spread of information is as decentralized as as humanly possible. So that even if some evil internet warlord wants to come over and and start taking control of that, it's virtually impossible to do. Is, Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, yeah. Creating more of an uncensorable environment. Now, the nuance here is that with regards to user control, when you're dealing with distributed systems like blockchains and torrent structures and these kinds of things, you can't delete from the blockchain. It's immutable. Same with torrents. You're, you're pushing it into literally the ethereal realms where it's, it's out there. And there are purposes where you want that. You don't want some, a piece of information to be able to be taken down. There's other situations where maybe it's something that you do want to be able to delete and you, and you want that control. So this is where I think sort of a, 
a hybridized approach is is where things are going, just where we can individually decide, okay, on this post, how do I want that to be treated? What, you know, what do I want to do with it, depending on the context of the, of the specific situation? So, I mean, I fairly well understand the distributed technology and parallel processing that drives that information from place to place. But the weak point still seems to be, and I think we've seen this with a number of other people and thinking of the Daily Stormer, that the, um, the ISP, the domain name, and so on, is that not a place or point of weakness if uh, actions want to be taken against mines? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, domains, they can, can be attacked. But with, with DAT, actually, it's its own protocol. So it's actually the only way to access DAT now is through a tool called the, the Beaker Browser, which it, and, and I think Chrome and Firefox and Brave are going to start supporting DAT and IPFS and some of these other. This is a little esoteric, but it's actually DAT colon slash slash whatever. So it's, it's actually completely uh, independent from HTTP. Um, and, you know, domains are nice and they're pretty. And, I, you know, Minds.com is, is, uh, is, is really good for just helping, you know, people, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a knowable, recognizable domain. But I think that, you know, ultimately domains aren't the point. You know, you can always get a different domain. It's really about the, the application and you know if it if it can really work to to suit people's needs. So uh, there's many points of failure, whether it's ISPs, servers, or you know social networks, or um, for for typical censorship. But I, I tend to think things are going to find their way around it. But that all that doesn't mean that we should just abandon uh, holding these companies and you know governments or whoever accountable for it. I think we should do as best we can to preserve the existing infrastructure so that, you know, we, it would be nice if we didn't have to build a totally new internet. It would, um, it's kind of, uh, reinventing the wheel. Um, you know, I, I always, uh, I, I say this a lot, but it's just like, it's so obnoxious to me that Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and all literally they're all proprietary. None of them share the source code that of their, of their main applications. So they've, they forced companies like us and a lot of other really cool emerging alternative uh, projects to, to rewrite what they've already done a pretty good job of designing. I mean, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Google, like it's cool software, but it's, you know, totally secretive. And, and so as opposed to having us build on top of them and, and taking society forward in, you know, putting our mental energy into something even more productive, like you know, a, a cool phrase in the open source world is uh, is standing on the shoulders of giants. Like we're constantly building upon the the great ideas of people in the past, and and they're basically not allowing us to do that. You know, they'll open source like tiny little backend tools, but you know, I, so it, th there's really serious detriment in in what they're doing to the the, the evolution of of technology and, and society in general. Yeah, but I mean, having stood myself in front of people and asking them for money to build a business, one of the first questions is, you know, how how much control do you have over it? How many people can reproduce this and how long would it take? And so, of course, you know, if you have proprietary stuff, you tend to get the big bucks going forward because they can look at just the kinds of returns that Google and Twitter and Facebook have been able to provide. 
I think that that is true with certain types of inventions, but w- especially when it comes to software, I mean, so we use a license called the AGPL V3, which is a, a version of the general public license. And, you know, for the first few years, we, 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 it wasn't open source. We always knew that we were going to. And then, you know, you're scared. You're like, oh, people are going to, people are going to steal my idea and, the, and they're going to compete with me and I, I have to keep it secret. And then, you know, it, it, it's just, I don't feel like it really works like that. I, I think that are the terms of our license state that if anyone, anyone can take our code, use it, create their own app, they can create their own minds, they can sell it, they can do whatever they want. But if they change it, they have to show the changes with everybody else. And that allows them to be commercial. It allows us to protect ourselves so that, you know, they're not getting too much of an unfair advantage over us. And that's really the difference between a free software license and a, and a typical open source license or like a public domain where people can just take it and do whatever they want with it, including keep it secret. This is why you see like really great thinkers like Richard Stallman and uh, in the free software movement, which is distinct from the open source movement in, in that specific regard about, um, you know, having to share with the rest of the community. No, look, I mean, people, I think, have have the right to do what they want to do. It's not necessarily a, a judgment, but I found that our growth has come from from sharing our code. Like, it, it's the network effect that we achieve by being fully transparent. I mean, we even publish our financials uh, yearly because we did a equity crowdfunding um, through the JOBS Act in the U.S., where we could bring in like accredited and non-accredited investors. And so we publish our financials yearly with the SEC um, and we share all our code. And I think that transparency is just so appealing. And I think specifically in the social networking market, there's such a demand for that. So I'm not like applying this to every type of invention that you might be mentioning, but I think it it is very important with the, you know, the global communications platforms to be like very transparent with the people who are using it. Otherwise, you run into problems with the um, inability to understand what the algorithms on YouTube and Facebook, et cetera, are doing. You just you can't know because, you know, they're, they're not showing it. Well, IP is kind of like cocaine in that it gives you a big of a boost, a, a big boost right up front, but it costs you in the long run. I mean, I sort of think of the origin of classical music before there was copyright for music and they were sharing and they were growing and then this now it's like also restrictive that we don't have another round of classical music it's like it started in a state of freedom and then that people started erecting these barriers to entry and barriers to sharing and everybody became paranoid of of copying and adapting and it just kind of died on the vine and that's a real tragedy and i think the same thing happens with it that you get a big boost but then because it's so centralized and proprietary, it becomes a magnet for the power hungry and, and the controllers who want to use it for their own ends. Exactly. I mean, look at Linux. Look at, um, you know, not, you know, Wikipedia has its own, uh, I think, uh, censorship issues. But Wikipedia, I think, is a beautiful example of an open source community driven project. It's the only site in the top 10 on the Internet that is open source. It, you know, is that they somehow have similar traffic to mega corporations of, of, you know, a small, a small team, uh, Mozilla, Firefox, WordPress is open source. It's a very successful enterprise technology company. Um, you know, the, the model is proven Mongo database. I mean, there, there's a whole, uh, there, there's massive growth occurring in the enterprise open source, 
uh, software world. And so I think it's sort of proving itself. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. There's um, with music, there's a really cool documentary called Everything is a Remix, which sort of goes into, I mean, it's sort of hard to deny that we're, that's sort of what we're all doing is, is remix, remixing our experiences and sort of channeling it in a unique way. And so th if, if that's how almost like physics works, you know, trying to uh, mask and put, put these sort of wrappers over our creations. I mean, yeah, there could be some short-term benefits, uh, but I think ultimately it's at least not the path that, that we're taking. Right. Where do you think, I mean, society is this big giant blob, so it's hard to make collective judgment. But, uh, Bill, where do you think society is regarding all of this political correctness? Uh, I'll just give you a few thoughts and, and then feel free to, to take it from there. So it's one of these sort of thin edge of the wedge issues. Like at the beginning, it's like, okay, yeah, these words are pretty rude. Yeah, these words are pretty insensitive. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll make these adjustments. And then you think, okay, good, we're, we're done. <laughs> and then it's like now... The amount of, of self-censorship that you have to do in, in yourself, not just online, but, you know, if you're in college or, or in the workplace, has become such an escalation. And I think that there's two kinds of reactions to this. One is that people become more and more sensitive to negative information or negative perspectives or, or negative judgments. And then they really need this shield of language to keep bad words, bad thoughts at bay. And other people feel very claustrophobic around that and just want to break out and burst through and, and hopefully not throw the baby out of the bathwater, but just leave it all behind. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is this Tim pool who, you know, uh, he posted a, a really cool article that I mentioned earlier from the Atlantic, which is covering a study called hidden, uh, hidden tribes, the study of America's polarized landscape. And it, it basically suggests, sort of the opposite of what you would typically think in that there's this mass movement towards political correctness. I think that a lot of the, the establishment media is trying to make that the narrative. But when you actually talk to real people, this study uh, talked to 8,000 people, did 30 hours of, uh, you know, in-person interviews. And, you know, they found that 80% were anti-PC across the racial and economic spectrum. And so I, I'm not convinced that that's the state of I, – I, I typically think that most people are, are more reasonable. And it, it also concluded that the people who are more anti-PC are more wealthy and have more education. So uh, that makes sense with a lot of the, the university stuff going on. And um, I, I think that we're going to be okay. I actually am a little bit of an optimist, I have to admit. <laughs> right. So for those who don't – know much about mines or the decentralized information sharing as a whole what is the pitch why should they leave you know the network effect of facebook the network or, or the detail effect of of google the network effect of twitter and places like that what is the plus what is the sales pitch that you would make to people who are not even sure why they bother so i i don't think it's a cold turkey thing necessarily. I mean, I'm, I'm off those networks now and it feels better. Um, but I think that there, there, there is some value there maybe. So, you know, supplementing open source solutions that are actually, you know, abiding by, you know, potentially your principles, you have to support projects 
that are abiding by your principle. I mean, same thing with, with supporting your podcast or supporting uh, all of these uh, podcasts and platforms. You have to walk the walk and at least show some support, check in once in a while, do a few posts. You just be there. Um, a sign-up matters because metrics are what drive the growth of internet projects. Th- this is how uh, this is this is the distribution of power on the web. Is the micro movements in terms of just signing in? It, it, it matters. And then you know, additionally, what I would say is you could spend years on Twitter or you or any of these platforms, if, especially if you're not an influencer, and literally not have many people hear you and not grow and we've we created a system that's specifically designed to help people be heard which is so you can when when you sign up you start earning tokens you get some just for signing up and one token will give you a thousand views so you'll be earning tokens and and you will be able to boost your your content out of the void and people will see it so we're finding even though we're a fraction of the size of the major networks people are finding an easier time gaining a following and reaching their audience, which is just, um, which is crazy, but it's sort of the, that, that's what, uh, the evidence is showing based on testimonials. Well, and you're, you get to pick and choose the content that you want rather than the content that other people can't choose. And there's not also this weird suppression and, and view counts going down and people being shadow banned and you somehow got unsubscribed and all of that monkeying that, People talk about, I don't know how much specific proof there is, but there, there does seem to be some going on. And, and knowing that you're on a kind of stable environment, that if you choose to follow someone, by golly, you're going to be able to follow them and, and see what they've got to say. And there's no centralized way to track, manipulate, or control the information that you're exposing yourself to. That That is the most basic feature of a social network, is to be able to post and know that the people who are following you are going to see that post. The fact that they have drifted from that basic principle of communicating with your network is just uh, – it's sort of unforgivable. I mean it's borderline false advertising just because we spend so much time building up followings on, on these networks and then you can't even reach the people who you <laughs> spend time getting. It's like that was the whole point. So we're, we will never put algorithms into the main newsfeed. It will be, always be raw and chronological. I think that if people want to, you know, curate their own secondary feed, like based on their own interests, that's fine, but it it would never be default. And that is something that has become, you don't even notice it until you're not on it. Uh, And, and that is something that's, that's very powerful. It puts you back in control of the information that you want and you're not going to be manipulated and, it not being talked about. I mean, the fact that you guys are open source is, is really cool because it means that you can't slip stuff in, you know, like the old uh, the, the butcher with his finger on the scale. It gives you an extra couple of ounces of meat. The fact that you guys will allow people to simply see what they want to see, to post what they want to post. And it is back to the early days. You know, I, I joined YouTube in 2006. I mean, I was like guy number four back when it was a good old 240p you know as I get older the resolution gets better it's just tragic all around but I never I never once until a couple years ago Bill I never once thought oh wow wow you know this is going to get flagged this is going to be a problem this I was just like you know obviously I wanted to obey the law and I I don't ever want to threaten or anything like that but when it came to just making good arguments and having great conversations and bringing unusual data to the attention of people, 
I never used to think about, oh, what effects this is going to have. I never used to check into my email saying, oh, I wonder what problem I have now. And when it creeps up on you like that, it is kind of insidious. I guess like this sort of <laughs> carbon monoxide poisoning. It's like you don't really notice it. And then... <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to think that the chilling effect can affect you. Um, but then when, you know, it's your platform that is at risk, it's uh, it's really scary when it starts creeping into your own your own head. And that's why, you know, we're just trying to get the you know, the power out of our hands so that we don't we don't have to worry about that. And um, you know, the other thing I want to mention is just with regards to content and and nuance and, and comedy. I think that the, the biggest issue, comedy or, or, you know, whatever subject, that when the algorithms have control, what's happening is that the AI and the algorithms are just sweeping the, the, the content and they're looking for all kinds of triggers. And it's just, they've decided that the fallout is worth it. And so the, literally the machines are in control. And yes, there's, there's humans controlling the machines, but the, but the humans have decided that they, you know, in order to achieve this environment that, that they deem uh, appropriate and safe, they're willing to have, have that fallout. And the, but in terms of AI being able to understand nuance of speech and, and sarcasm, and it's just not going to – we're not even close. So that's why, you know, we take everything on, a, on an individual basis – uh, I mean, obviously there are, there is malicious behavior and you know, uh, there, there, there is illegal stuff. There's, there's stuff that, you know, it's not like, you know, spam attackers, like, uh, you know, s certain violent threats that actually pass the Brandenburg test. The Brandenburg test has to do with the imminence of a violent threat and the specificity of a violent threat. That's what the Supreme court talks about. And so as long as it is not an imminent, specific, violent threat. It actually passes the Supreme Court's test. Um, but I think that in in regards to uh, censorship, like you just you have to humans have to look at it in order to understand. And and it and it does matter. Every individual takedown matters. And so, if you are existing in a policy where literally half the content on your site is, is against the, the terms, then the amount of overhead that the Google and Facebook and Twitter have to censor, they have so much stuff that's against their terms. They're spent, they have to hire thousands and thousands of people to be policing that. So it's just not even feasible and, you know, or, uh, intelligent to, to be operating in a system like that. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it is tragic. And, I always had this idea based upon science fiction books and movies from my youth that we were going to get encased and used as batteries or something like it was going to be some. But instead, we're kind of encased by these soft tentacles of self-censorship for fear of losing access to a world audience that only wants to listen to what we have to say in general because we say something unusual or startling or interesting or, or revelatory. And so it's the originality and the curiosity that leads the growth of the audience, which drives these social networking sites to have this power and relevance and then they kind of turn on you as a creator a little bit right and they're like okay well now now that we've used your resources no don't get me wrong i've used their resources other people have as well but now that we've used your creativity to get an audience we're now going to start to turn things around 
And, uh, you know, it's just not anywhere in the terms of service because they have all these vague terms. And whenever the terms are vague, you know lefties have crafted them knowing that they're going to be holding most of the reins of power or the leaves of power. So they can just say, well, if it's a negative experience for a user, and it's like, well, I don't know, somebody who's uh, who's pro-abortion uh, uh, would would be offensive to somebody who's... who's um, pro-life and vice versa. So who's going to end up moving these levers? The less defined they are, and that's why in law they tend to be, at least in America, very clearly defined, but the less defined they are, the more open they are to abuse. And you really are walking into uh, a sort of mind control leftist dungeon that that, uh, is either people are going to just blow out of it one way or another, or they go to minds.com or other places. I don't don't think there is another option because I don't even want to think of that. (laughs) There's, you know, the blowback hits the left too. Uh, Telesur, which is, uh, you know, I th- uh, uh, Venezuelan state uh, media. Uh, actually, uh, one user on Minds who's uh, who's uh, left, but you know, somewhat rational. Uh, Abby Martin, she's on Minds. She was, she had a show on Telesur. The whole Telesur uh, page got wiped from Facebook. You know, and I think, you know, you you hear voices like, you know, the Glenn Greenwald's of the world, the uh, Chomsky's, these types of people, they know, they know that this isn't, that the censorship doesn't work. And and so even organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, which, it, it, you know, definitely has uh, both liberal and conservatives in, in their leadership, they all know that, that censorship is not a feasible solution and, and there's going to be blowback. It even blows back to LGBT communities because you know of the more racy stuff, um, so it, it, it's it's suicide, right? So for those who want to escape, minds.com, easy to sign up for uh, and uh, easy to use. Uh, anything rolling down the pipeline that people can be looking for after they sign up? Yeah, we have a lot of stuff that we're working on. Video conferencing right now. We're you know just we are hiring if you're open source developers hit us up find us on uh github hit me up uh i'm minds.com slash otman you know follow stefan on there too uh and yeah thanks for having me oh a real pleasure bill and uh that's minds.com and uh, it's well worth checking out and i've been a user for a long time and um although i have no financial stake in the company just everyone's so clear on that no conflict of interest i really really appreciate your time and of course i really appreciate the foundations that you're laying for uh, a kind of uh, new world that people can get to if the old world gets too claustrophobic which it does seem to be heading that direction so thanks bill a real great pleasure to chat thanks yeah let's stay in touch